Revelation, as I've already described briefly. The mission at this point in time, going into Acts chapter 15, it was going well. Believers were spreading the word, largely as a result of persecution, driving them out from Jerusalem. And the Holy Spirit was doing signs and wonders. And people were responding. They were responding to the message and to the work of the Holy Spirit. But there was opposition that would arise. Opposition was frequently there. Let me just briefly describe some of the opposition we've, we've covered over the last couple of months. It all started on actually week two of our sermon series in Acts chapter 2, probably the mildest form of persecution. On the day of Pentecost, the apostles and those in the upper room were accused of, of being drunk because they were speaking in other tongues. That mocking, that ridicule, that kind of persecution continues to this day. Later on, the Jewish leaders reacted strongly to the healing of the man that was lame from birth that happened at the beautiful gate. And they arrested the two perpetrators, Peter and John, and lectured them. Later persecution, the high priest and Sadducees arrested all the apostles to prevent them from teaching the gospel, from teaching the people. Later on, there was the martyrdom of Philip, of Stephen, excuse me, the martyrdom of Stephen, we talked about a few weeks ago. From that, a great persecution arose, and that included Saul, who would eventually be converted and be called Paul. But because of that persecution, believers were spread all over, carrying the word with them. Some scholars believe that was the key event in the early spread of the gospel. Saul began preaching boldly, and there were a couple of assassination attempts on his life, more persecution. Then what happened was the martyrdom of the Apostle James and the near martyrdom of the Apostle Peter. And the Scripture describes Elymas, the evil false prophet and magician opposing Saul. And last week we talked about the persecution of Paul and Barnabas in Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, and Lystra. And so it, ha- it happens again and again as the gospel spread and prospered, the forces of darkness would come against it, trying to nullify it, trying to prevent its spread. But now, in Acts chapter 15, opposition will come from within, in a sense. This represents mission drift. A controversy arose over a doctrinal question. They were thinking such thoughts as this. As as part of the mission, what should we be preaching? What exactly is the gospel? How should it be lived out? Is it by faith or by faith in obeying the law of Moses? If you're trying to accomplish the mission and you're doing it the wrong way, you're, you're bound for failure. So that became a big question. This wouldn't be the last time that the church would face a question like this. Two early issues in the history of the church, that was Gnosticism. I could summarize that into uh, two components. Gnostics believed that there was a dichotomy between matter and spirit. Basically, spirit was good and matter was evil. 
And you can find that being addressed somewhat in the Scriptures. That's how early that, that uh, controversy was. And the other one was Arianism. Arius was a priest about almost 300 years later who taught that Jesus was not fully God. And that, that really spread. It was largely because of that that the council at Nicaea was called to decide what, what exactly, who is this Jesus? Is he God or is he not God? Is he fully God or is he not fully God? And so they, they grappled with this issue. In a sense, both these controversies are still alive today. Gnosticism, well, the other characteristic of Gnosticism was it, it involved uh, acquiring a higher knowledge and a, and a deeper truth. If you were one of the initiated, you had access to this deeper knowledge. And that, that appeals to people. People like to be in kind of the inner ring, kind of like to be in the know. And so now you find, sometimes you find elements of that in people coming up with these with brand new teachings. Uh, let me tell you, if it's brand new in the history of the church, it's probably wrong in some way. Now, we get, sometimes the Holy Spirit will put an emphasis on something and, and it'll seem new, but it's not really new. If it really is new, it's probably not valid. It's probably in some way relating to Gnosticism in some fashion. And the Arian cult, which they thought they stamped out at the Council of Nicaea, turned out it, it raged on for another couple centuries. And in fact, we see elements of it today in cults. A standard, frequent characteristic of a cult is to say that, well, Jesus was not God. And from that, all kinds of, the Trinity breaks down, all kinds of things break down once you start saying that. That's so why we see elements of that today. So, the question is exactly... What are the beliefs of a good follower of Jesus? That's what they tried to address in, in the Nicene Creed, which we covered earlier this year. Some issues today that face the church, there's something called liberal theology. Now that's different from liberal politics. Those are two different things. So when I say liberal theology, I'm not talking about liberal politics at all. Uh, many of the mainline denominations would have what's known as a, a liberal theology. One of the characteristics of it, it would tend to deny supernatural activity. I remember talking with, uh, this was years ago when I was a young Christian, with a, a, a Jesuit priest with a Ph.D. in physics who also worked at Argonne besides serving as a priest. And he, he was telling me, you know, there's really no angels, there's no devil, the resurrection, that didn't really happen. And... and I thought, what on earth are you talking about? I just learned about this, you know, some of this stuff and started really, really believing it. And something like the resurrection would be considered a myth in liberal theology. It would be a story told to illustrate a truth that's too deep for words. And you just try to illustrate it. So the myth of the resurrection was created. And the bottom line is, good triumphs over evil. That was meant to demonstrate that. So can you, can you still be a Christian and believe that? That's a good question. Please bring up the first, verse, first passage. Turn to Romans, Romans 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It kind of looks like it's kind of hazardous to throw out the idea that Jesus rose from the dead, at least according to Paul in Romans. So some of these, some of these questions are really quite important. Here's some, I have a few other issues as examples that you find in, in uh, non-liberal theology. A question that's fairly hot today is, is Jesus the only way? Jesus himself commented on that issue. Another question is, does anyone go to hell? A sub-question to that is, if yes, does anyone stay in hell? Another question is, what kind of sexual behavior is okay? And the big question, at least from my perspective, is, are there errors in the Bible? The sub-question to that is, how should the Bible be understood? That last question is the key to answering them all. Okay, enough of the introduction. That's after 11 already. Going to Acts chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This is not an unreasonable thing. Following, following Jesus can be considered a legitimate extension of Judaism, after all. The Jewish scriptures, which we know as the Old Testament, are full of prophecies for the Messiah. Doesn't it make sense to embrace him when he comes? And why would you want to get rid of the law of Moses just because the Messiah finally arrived? That makes sense. And they were saying, you still have to follow the law of Moses. Next verse. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So there was uh, a, a controversy erupted. They couldn't sell it, settle it themselves, so they wanted to get a decision from the apostles and elders at headquarters, that is Jerusalem. Continuing on. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The same thing, the same controversy now is, is active in Jerusalem. God established a covenant with circumcision as a sign. Why get rid of it? Was their thinking. God established a covenant with Moses that required people to keep the law handed down by God. Shouldn't we continue in it? Was their thinking. Now that we know that Gentiles are invited to be followers of Jesus, shouldn't they have the same rules as us? This is what they are debating. Next few verses. 
the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter contends, We Jews couldn't keep the law. How can we expect the Gentiles to keep it? We Jews have our hearts cleansed by faith. Should we expect the Gentiles to have their hearts cleansed by faith and works of the law? If we believe that we Jews would be saved by grace, then we should expect the Gentiles to do the same. Next verse. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related with signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Yeah, the Gentiles really were invited by God. And this is how God demonstrated it. Continuing on. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the life, seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is James, the Lord's brother, who's the main leader in Jerusalem. The apostle James had been killed somewhat earlier. And by the way, Simeon is really another name for Peter. James quotes from the prophet Amos. And then he references two kinds of laws. Ritual laws and a moral law. The three ritual laws he mentioned, that he says that we, we should continue to, continue to observe is, is to avoid giving unnecess, unnecessary offense to Jewish Christians who think that they, these laws to be important. These things are read every, every Sunday in the synagogues, and so kind of in deference to them, they should observe these laws. But there was one moral law, Perhaps the one moral law that was mentioned, dealing with sexual immorality, was mentioned because the typical Gentile conscience in those days was so corrupted that special emphasis was needed. We should really pay heed to that today. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul is very clear on the value of faith. If I might buzz through three quick passages in Galatians. 
O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. So he's saying that you know it's, it's a matter of faith. It's not a matter of performing what the law requires. It's a matter of faith. He continues on that theme two chapters later. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept, accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. He's saying these outward acts really don't count. It's a matter of faith. If you think you can get circumcised and you're okay, you are wrong. And one last passage that he writes in the following chapter, talking about the motivation, some of the motivation for requiring Gentiles to follow the law. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, or uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So he's saying again and again, it's a matter of faith. It's a matter of faith, not, not by fulfilling the law. All right, back to the council at Jerusalem. They worked and worked at this, at this decision until they were convinced that they were in agreement with the Holy Spirit. Back to Acts. This is the letter that they're going to write to send out to settle this controversy. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, that's a ritualistic law, and from blood, ritualistic law, and from what has been strangled, ritualistic, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, and with many others also. All right. So what, all, what does all this mean for us? What, what are the takeaways from this narrative, from this, this uh, controversy that was settled by the Council of Jerusalem, the first recorded council of its type? I'm going to propose to you three takeaways. Number one is a little bit of a sidebar. This issue of sexual morality is very much alive today. We as a society can get very confused on this topic and that can, that can affect us as believers. We need a biblical perspective. 
There's no time to comment on that further. But we need a biblical perspective on what godly sexuality is and not take our societal standards as the measure. Second takeaway. It is important what you believe. This is not a free-for-all. You just don't believe anything you want and, and that's okay. See, there's false teachers that can arise. We'll hear next week how Paul, when he said farewell to the Ephesians, a place where he'd spent a fair amount of time doing ministry, when he said farewell to them for the last time, he said, I know that problematic teachers are going to arise from your very own midst, drawing disciples after themselves. He writes about this, Paul writes about this phenomenon to his protege Timothy. He writes, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And so we're, we're still in that. There's, there's goofy things that arise. Something new shows up and people start, yeah, this is great. Well, maybe it's not so great. If it's not connected to truth, it's probably not so great. And so we can't be neither too hard nor too soft on this. We, we can't be so hard that it has to be you know, my way or the highway. You have, to, you have to think and believe exactly like I do or I, I won't talk to you. We have to have charity for each other. In, in non-essential matters. When it comes to the content of the gospel, is it faith or is it faith plus works that are required? Now, works are an evidence of faith. They're, they're an effect. They're not a cause. If we, can't, we need to agree on, on, on issues like that, and that's what they are addressing in the Council of Jerusalem. So there are, there are some things that are important to believe. For the things that are non-essential, we should have charity towards one another. But for things that are essential, we should, keep, we should keep each other accountable and keep ourselves accountable. So seek to follow the truth in all ways. And if you end up departing from historic Christianity, you need to really watch your step. Third takeaway, some people feel that they enter by faith and then continue on by following rules on how to live. That was the problem with the church of Galatia. They acknowledge, well, I get in by faith, but after that I've got I to follow all these rules. Rules, rules, rules. And it becomes a rule-based system, which is really what Moses established. And it wasn't that it wasn't ungodly. It had great value. But that covenant has been replaced. And so, we need to understand it's all by faith, as Paul explained in the Galatian passages. So if, if you gain the idea that you enter by faith and then you continue by works, just forget it. You enter by faith 
And the way forward is always in faith. You continue in faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive your sins. He has mercy. You and I never run out of the need for mercy. If you think you're going to come to faith and then live a sinless life, you're just wrong. You're, you're not going to make it. You, you couldn't make it before and you're not going to make it now. It's always by faith. We always need forgiveness. We always need grace. And it's by faith. Now you'll live a good life as an effect of that faith, but we can't get it confused. That's a fruit of a godly life and not the prerequisite. Please rise. Please pray with me. Oh, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would help us believe the truth and live in the truth. Lord, give us charity towards others who don't think or believe exactly like we do. But Lord, where it comes to the really important stuff, we need to help our brothers and sisters come to that or come back to that if we really love them. So Lord, we ask that you would lead us into the truth, that, that, that we would know the truth and live out the truth. And we need your Spirit, Lord. We need your Spirit to accomplish that in us. And Lord, even as we intend to live out the truth, we, we never want to depart from knowing it's, it's all by faith. It's by our trust and hope and faith in the Lord Jesus. That's how he began and that's how we need to continue. And that will carry us through to the end. So send your Spirit upon us now, Lord. Help us. Take care of us. Be with us, Lord. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.